Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of the Missing Stone podcast, where I interview conservationists about their path through their chosen field and the work they are doing today. This week, I was excited to speak with Matt Lindenberg, founder and executive director of the Global Conservation Corps. I was fascinated to talk with Matt about the combination of luck and perseverance it can take to find your way in the field of conservation, as he worked his way from a volunteer at the Southern African Wildlife College to a position training safari guides for the college. We then dove into his master's research, studying the reintroduction of seven captive-raised cheetah into the wild, and how the results of this study changed its trajectory in the field of conservation. Finally, we discussed the Global Conservation Corps, focusing on the Future Rangers program, which educates and connects local youth with conservation opportunities and the training needed to succeed in those roles. If you would like to donate to the Global Conservation Corps or learn more about the work they are doing, you can visit the links in the description below. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Missing Stone podcast, everybody. I'm super excited today to announce founder and executive director of the Global Conservation Corps, Matt Lindenberg. How are you doing today, Matt? Yeah, doing very well. Thank you, Sean. Just trying not to melt in the South African heat today. Otherwise, I'm great, though. Thank you. How is everything going over there in South Africa? You mentioned you have a heat wave. Uh, How's everything going? Just... Are you out in the field a lot right now with the the work you're doing or are you able to hide out a bit? At the moment, hiding out, staying out of the direct sunlight. We'll get into it in a bit. But most of our work happens at the schools that border Kruger National Park. And in South Africa, our schooling system has shut down for the end of the year holidays. All the students broke up about two, three weeks ago. And yeah, myself and our amazing team have all just been taking this time to get some... I wouldn't say rest, but at least some shade and out of the school and out of the elements. So yeah, very hot, definitely going into summer. We've had our first big rain about a week ago and yeah, everyone's fired up. It's four days until Christmas time and it's a huge party in South Africa during this festive season. So good spirits all around. Awesome. So you have so much that you're involved in over there with the Global Conservation Corps doing education, working with field rangers. So before we really dive into that in the second half of this podcast, I really want to dive into your origin story, if you will. I heard that you're a big Batman fan, so we can phrase it that way. And so I'd love to hear that first moment that really connected you with nature and set you off on this path. Yeah, this is a great question. There's a a few that come to mind immediately. The, The story that I, let's say, I tell the most and I share the most about is the one that feels like it happened yesterday. When I was, so I was born and raised in Johannesburg, huge city, probably 6 million people by now. It's massive. So I was born and raised there until I was seven. And then my parents decided to get out of the rat race, out of the city. And we moved to a very small forestry town called Sabi, which was about an hour and a half away from the Kruger National Park. So they ran a guest house and it was a four bedroom guest house. And so we had guests coming in from all over the world. And my dad was a, became a tour guide and started taking these tourists into the park to go and see wildlife. And the huge fortune of joining my dad, especially during school holidays to go into the Kruger National Park. But along my dad's journey, he became friendly with the managers of one of the most prestigious reserves along Kruger called the Sabi Sands. And it's, really famous and well-known for leopards, incredible history and story about those large cats there. And one day 
we were invited for lunch. We couldn't afford to stay at the actual lodge, but we got an invite for lunch. My mom, my dad, my sister and I went for lunch. And after lunch, when the rest of the family was hanging out by the pool and spending time with the lodge managers, they gave me the chance to go and walk in the bush with this, I was a little blonde nine-year-old boy with two field rangers. And for anyone that's come to South Africa or on safari, you'll know there's your field guide, which is the public facing tour guide. And then you've got the guys and ladies working behind the scenes called field rangers. They're the ones really there as the eyes and ears of the bush. So I got to go walk with those legends. I remember we tracked lion tracks in the sand to a water point that showed me where the lions drank. We stepped back and then looked down and saw hippos moving in the water, which was really exciting. But I, I got to tell you too, Sean, like it was so much more for me about the mystery of these people. There were two Shangani men, which is one of the, the cultures along the, the Kruger border. And these men had so much reverence about them. They were so attuned to the bush and to nature and they were quiet, they were humble, they were focused, they were kind, and they had fun. Because I remember at the end of my ranger walk, coming back up to the lodge, they said, whoa, put your hands up, put your hands up. And okay, put my hands up. And they're like, there's a Mozambique and spitting cobra in this bush right next to you. Just be really still and walk as slowly as you can uh, to get away from this bush. <laughs> so I look up probably four minutes later, these guys were in stitches, man. They had pranked me. And I, yeah, they just had the best time just kind of messing with this little kid. So they didn't take, take life too seriously. But that was such a pivotal moment for me because I got, that was my first taste of, let's say, going behind the scenes in conservation. Generally, when you go to Kruger or other conservation areas, you're the tourists, the public facing officials. My experience there, I got to meet these superhumans <laughs> operating in the shadows that without, we, we would literally have no wildlife left today. So that moment stuck in my mind. And from there, probably about a year later, my parents got divorced. The bank took everything. Like Life really took a bad turn. My dad took us to Johannesburg. And then very quickly after that, we immigrated to the US. And in the space of eight years, I think I went to 21 different schools. So it was yeah, I went from having this like very beautiful, almost like picture perfect childhood of growing up in nature, seeing wildlife, building forts, skinning my knees, getting dirty and having all this fun to, yeah, in a way, like just fighting, fighting through a pretty tumultuous time in the States. And to end up kind of end this part of the story is I was 19. I had dropped out of university at Montana State University because I, I couldn't afford out-of-state tuition. I definitely got in with the wrong crowd, lost my way and called my dad and I said, dad, I, I need to come because I moved out of home when I was 15 to go and pursue a, a tennis career. I, I got pretty far and then I got hurt. So all that to say, ended up in Montana, wanted to be a fighter pilot, turned out I was colorblind. So it all fell apart, called my dad, moved to Hawaii. And I remembered I was sitting on a beach at the end of 2008 in Hawaii, in so-called paradise. And I think it was, I think it was just after Thanksgiving. And I remember like looking out over Kaneohe Bay on Oahu on a beautiful day. It was blue skies and white sand and just like an absolute paradise. And I realized I was, I was miserable. I was depressed. I had no purpose, no meaning in my life. I 
had nothing really that that fired me up that was bigger than myself to to light my fire and and have a purpose for being in this world. And in that moment, I thought back to the story I just described to you about being with those rangers. And so I booked a trip. I came back to South Africa to visit my mom. I got to experience a few weeks in the bush. Came back to America and I said, Dad, I'm going home. And I turned in my green card and said goodbye to my dad and my sister and the culture that I had known and, and loved for eight years. Because, yeah, like I think every conservationist will have a similar story, like when nature calls and that bug bites, like you cannot deny that the gravity that it has on your spirit to to come back. And that's, yeah, and that's really when like things got interesting. And that story really spoke to me a lot because I remember, so I got lucky enough to do a month-long internship in Namibia about... 10 years ago now and we were mostly working on a soft release site or with captive individuals on that internship but i got to travel around for two weeks after and we ended up in the okavanga delta and after being in a truck in all of these different national parks to then be on the okavanga delta and the hippo comes up and there's nothing between you and the hippo and i convinced one of the guys we were out there with to help me stalk an elephant and we got about 50 feet away when the wind shifted and the elephant immediately knew we were there and it's just those powerful moments of there's nothing between you and the bush it's just you out there and your wits and that's about it (laughs) and uh so yeah that story really spoke to me that's such an amazing experience thank you yeah yeah it's nothing quite like it. And to your point, just how vulnerable and connected you feel when there is nothing between you and some of these potentially dangerous animals and how we, I wouldn't say hide, but we get so safe and behind our modern civilization and technology and creature comforts that we forget that put us out in the bush. And we, we're not completely 100% on top of that food chain. It gets a little bit interesting when you return to nature, just how humbling it can be. <laughs> So I don't necessarily want to skip over all of your time in the States, but I do want to focus on this conservation side. So diving back into when you made it back to South Africa, what was that next step to get back into the field for you? Yeah, absolutely. Following those breadcrumbs, my adopted gran, Joan, was really good friends with a lady also called Joan and Joan's friend, Joan. (laughs) had a daughter called Teresa, who was the executive director of the Wildlife College, the Southern African Wildlife College, which borders Kruger National Park. And so I went there, I volunteered. I then, my mom very kindly funded me to get my field guiding qualification at the Wildlife College. And all through this journey, there was a mutual family friend that was like, you just get qualified. I've got a job for you at a five-star lodge. You'll come and guide my guests and X, Y, and Z. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. The day that I finished my qualification as a field guide, called this lodge and the secretary answered and just said, that job has been filled. Sorry. So I'd given up my green card, a future in the States, left most of my family and whatever friends I had at the time behind to come back to live in the bush. And I had nothing. So I had this little qualification and I was uh, stoked. And then all of a sudden, everything shifted, everything changed. I went back to Joburg where my mom was living, stuck in this little flat with my mom and my gran. 
I think I was there for three months and I actually, it's cool. I like to write and I found a, a journal entry that I had written when I was in this very like depressing space with no options. I just kept writing, hang in, it's going to change. It's going to change. It's going to change. And the night that it all changed and the stars aligned, my gran and I, Joan, we used to go to a weekly meditation class on a Thursday. And that night, the meditation class got canceled. And Granny Joan came and she said, Matt, you're depressed. We've got to go do something. Like, I got to get you out of this house. If we can't go meditate, we're going to do the second best thing, which is gamble. So she took me <laughs> to at the Joburg airport. She gave me like $5 and I lost it all. Of course, I'm a terrible gambler. And then she took me out to a lovely supper and we're just having a chat. And in this massive casino at Vegas, huge like crowds and people. And I remember having dessert and I look up and Teresa Sauri, the CEO, ex executive director of the Wildlife College, walked past me. Actually, not even past me. She was like 50 feet in the crowd in the back. And I saw her. I jumped out of my chair. I said, sorry, Joan. I ran over to her and I said, Teresa, hi. And she, it was their annual board meeting. And it's about a six-hour drive to get from where Teresa works to where Teresa was. She was there once in a year for this board meeting, and that was the night I was at this casino. And yeah, in a city of six million people, what are those odds, really? So I ran up to her and I said, this is who I am. And she said, yeah, I remember you, you were at the college, what's going on? And I said, well, I have no job. I've got, I just, just wanted to come say hi and not really doing anything except gambling my grand's money away. <laughs> and she said, well, you start on Monday with us as a volunteer. Sweet. I came home. I remember banging on my mom's window. She thought there was a, a burglary or a robbery taking place. It was just her son trying to tell her that he had found something to do. And yeah, that got me to the wildlife college. And it was some of the best years of my life. I think I worked there for almost six years. And I, I worked my way through a lot of different positions. Started off in that volunteer position under a, a really great mentor called Javi Lindeke. Showed me the ropes, mentored me. He helped me get my trails qualification so I could walk on foot with a rifle I then got into the world of helping to train other guides, which I loved, lots of time in the field. And then my life became filled with meaning and purpose because I got to connect with a man called Martin Mtembu, who I, I speak about a lot. He's the reason why I'm here, literally, as, as I'll tell you now. So Martin Mtembu was this incredible Zulu legend, born into an apartheid South Africa in 1968. He was the oldest of eight children. And at the time, Martin, as any black man in South Africa or, or black individual, he had, during apartheid years, very few rights and was extremely oppressed. And he had very few options to him, especially when his father died. As the oldest of his family, Martin's sort of only option at the time was to go in and enlist in the military. I believe he was in the 111th Battalion, which was quite infamous. And so he essentially went up and was involved in multiple conflicts and battles, fighting for a South Africa, for a country that didn't believe in him. Fast forward later on when South Africa got its independence in 94, Martin took all of these skills he acquired in the military and started applying it into conservation. And he could take, the beauty about Martin is that he shot straight. He could take anyone and especially youth and he could talk to them directly with respect, he always led with respect first. And with that respect, he gained the respect of the people that he trained. And so in his career, Martin Mtembu became one of the most famous ranger trainers the African continent has ever seen. He spoke 11 languages. He was deployed in 
conflict areas, places like Angola, the Congo. He was up in East Africa helping to uncover poaching syndicates. And I met him in 2009 at the Wildlife College. And I had the immense privilege of studying, training under Martin and spending countless weeks with him in the bush, training students, training field rangers. And honestly, those are some of the, the best years of my life. So that's where the love and the appreciation of field rangers really like, uh, took hold of my life. And it gave me that meaning. It gave me that purpose because the rhino poaching crisis, which started in South Africa, flared up 2008 to 2009, was right when I got into conservation. And so I was there when the mandate from national and provincial parks started to skyrocket to tr upskill existing employees or to train new rangers. So I was there every few months, there was a new training protocol and there was advanced. And then there was highly, all these different additional qualifications that rangers needed. And so to be there at the forefront when this war was escalating was a real privilege to, to have been there. And yeah, essentially it was because of Martin in the beginning that got me on the path that has led me here. Well, there's a couple of things I want to ask about that. But first, I do want to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned that you started with the Wildlife College as a volunteer, and you were super excited and gung-ho about it. However, I do want to ask when you're, first of all, how long was it before you managed to get a paid position with the Wildlife College? And what advice would you have for conservationists mm -hmm. who are in that stretch of their career where they're either volunteering or picking up very low paid temporary positions and just hoping for that one opportunity? It's really good. That's a really good question. I, yeah, so started off as a volunteer. I think it took me four months to work up the courage to go into Teresa's office and say, Teresa, I'd like a raise. I'd like a promotion. I think my first, I think even as a volunteer, I got a stipend. I got food covered at the cafeteria and I got a two by two uh, meter room. So six by six feet. And I think I got the equivalent of $50 a month, essentially a volunteer. I was really, I, I was incredibly grateful for it because to your point, I'm learning how hard it is to crack the code of getting into conservation for a lot of emerging, passionate, young professionals out there. So my really like humble advice around this is pure conservationists, I think, struggle the most when trying to break it into this world because we do not live in the world of pure, hardcore, what do you call it? What I would say is you got to treat this thing like any other job. Yes, we're working for passion and we're working for wildlife and working for animals, but what is the value that I can provide to my employer? And I think that is extremely important. And so advice that I would give is if you want to get into conservation, don't read any more conservation books. Maybe that sounds like a little crazy. Of course, like read what you want, but being able to diversify your skill sets and understand business management, understand good what good communication looks like, understand some of those like core values that are really actually hard to find in today's workforce. Understand how to create extreme value for your employer, for your organization. I think I outworked everyone I came into contact with, not in a bad way, but just like I, in the beginning, when you start in conservation, the passion really does, it is an advantage and you need to use that advantage when you get started. The pa No one's getting into conservation for the money. You're definitely getting in for the passion and for the love, right? And you've got to use that passion to to literally become the top the top candidate for that next evolution, that next position. Yeah, it's a really good question. 
And I think you're, everyone talks about this, but your network is your net worth. And so building as many connections as you can and being a connector, not always trying to get to people to, to build you up, but what value can you provide to others? Even as a volunteer, someone that might be low in the pecking order in that bigger conservation organogram, you can still provide a huge amount of value that might not be traditional, or you might not think it's valuable. These small acts of kindness and thoughtfulness and attention to detail go a long way to, in the eyes of people that really could give you a leg up, bringing value, it comes back to bringing value to your network. A, a vision board is another, it might sound really corny and silly, but a vision board is, is truly helped me get where I am. And every time I make a vision board, somehow, and I don't think it's luck or that I'm unique or special in any way, but I just think that there's so much power in putting your vision onto paper and being able to see it and look at it and connect with it every single day. I've done that multiple times. We use vision boards with all of the children's education programs we use now. And I just think that's another really powerful tool to get into a space of, this is my goal and I'm going to get there. I don't know how, no one ever really knows how, but the what you can quantify. Yeah. That's awesome. And the connecting your network was a really interesting point because Actually, one of the most excited I've gotten since starting this podcast is I connected uh, Denise Peterson and Dave Johnson, both of whom you know, and uh, they're now writing a children's book together. And so it's really cool when you do not only make that connection, but all of a sudden you see that that connection led to something that's absolutely awesome. And so the second thing that I really wanted to touch on from your previous answer was you mentioned Martin and the time you got to spend with him. And so I'd love to ask if there's just one piece of wisdom, and I know he imparted a lot to you, but if there's one that you could share with the next generation of conservationists, what would it be? Yeah, Martin, if I could give you maybe two actually that come to my mind. Definitely. That's right. The, <laughs> the first one, Martin's nickname was Mr. Make a Plan. If there was an issue, or uh, Martin never had problems. He only had challenges and he would always come back to Let, let's make a plan. That's, it's really as simple as it sounds is yes, there's always obstacles and issues, but he would always be the one to find a way forward, to find a solution. This is a guy that would get dropped off in a, a remote village inside the DRC and get asked to train 50 rangers with no resources, no no tools, no equipment, no projector, no electricity, no water, and he would make a plan. So he was forged under that mentality of there's always a way. It might not be traditional or conventional, but there's a way. So Martin is make a plan. The other thing that Martin was brilliant at that taught me was speak your truth. Even for me as a very young, unqualified, un whatever, and everything, volunteer to start with, Martin was always a big proponent of being true to yourself. And no matter what other people say, especially we're talking about young conservationists trying to break into this, these hierarchies, these big organizations and conservation are so leveled and layered. But being authentic is actually quite a rare thing to find these days. And Martin, even if he didn't like the answer, he would always encourage the truth because with the truth, he could move things forward. So yeah, make a plan and be honest, be true. That's absolutely great advice. And so I do want to make sure we have enough time to get to everything. And so while I'd love to cover a little bit more of your time with the Wildlife College, I have a feeling we'll touch on that a bit 
when we actually get to the GCC. So while you were working at the Wildlife College, you were concurrently getting your undergrad degree. And then ultimately, you went back for your master's degree. So I just love to ask you about that process. What led you to choose to do that undergrad? And then how did that lined up that master's degree? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. At the time when I started at the Wildlife College, my mom was dating somebody called Costa. And Costa's a successful businessman. He's a, a friend of mine. He's a mentor, someone I really respect and trust. And he really, he pushed me and he encouraged me to, because at the time at the college, I was living my dream. I was so stoked. I was surrounded by conservationists and rangers and I was having such a great time and I'd gotten these guiding specific qualifications. But Costa and with the support of my family really said, look, if you are going to make this a career, you cannot expect to get ahead in such a competitive underpaid market without having certain qualifiers that could set you apart to an employer. And I enrolled with the University of South Africa and I would work during my university years as an instructor, as a trainer, conservation trainer, as a ranger trainer by day, which is also physically quite demanding and really busy and really fun. And then at night I studied my undergraduate degree in environmental management with my two majors were zoology and geography, which honestly, Sean, I don't remember pretty much anything from my undergrad. I think it was more just about the the commitment and the dedication. And as soon as I got that, it unlocked a whole bunch of new promotions for me and opportunities. And I could teach high level courses at the college because I had an undergrad. So that that was the big driving force is I, I just realized that if I didn't set myself apart and did everything that I could in my power to become really competitive in this field there was not going to i was always going to be limited so there was that and i tried as much as i could to get as many other qualifications as i could so i got my pilot's license at the time which i have a huge passion for aviation i got that got all, all the guiding qualifications got all the some advanced first aid qualifications all the stuff that would make me at the time a very eligible employee in that conservation space as like a reserve manager or a yeah, someone that could make bigger decisions for large landscape uh, conservation. And then I got this. So I graduated thinking of a story. I'm just wondering if I should tell it. I guess if I keep it anonymous, I will just really quickly. So I graduated with my undergrad. I then got this position at this reserve that was, it's like right here where I live and work in Hoodspray, but no one knew much about it. And I got hired as the assistant reserve manager, and then I was in charge of helping to relocate four lions from a different province and reintroduce them. It took me about a month to realize that this was a really sketchy operation. And the owners of this lodge were marketing it as an ecotourism safari destination, but and this reserve was co-owned with the community. So communities getting benefits from ecotourism and the chief's happy. And then I found out that there was all sorts of backdoor illegal hunting of exotic and endangered animals like sable and roan happening on the property. So I left and once again, I was stuck in Johannesburg. Now I had a degree, six years behind me of working at a place like the Wildlife College, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And at the time, I became really friendly with a group of professors from Grand Valley State in Michigan, State University. And they said, all right, Matt, like, if you can find a cool research project, we'll fund it. We'll give you your master's. You'll come to Michigan. You'll write it up. And I got connected with Dr. Laurie Marker from Cheetah Conservation Fund. 
And that's where, uh, and I'm keen to know where you did your work with cats as well. Just quickly, yeah. Yeah, so I actually wasn't working with cats. I was working with African wild dogs. And I was actually oh. at Harnas, Harnas Wildlife Foundation. And it actually is something that I want to ask you about. Because ultimately, when I went over there, I actually ended up with a fairly sketchy organization that it was legit to a certain extent. But about two years after, a bunch of stuff came out about the organization I went over with. And we were staying at Harnas, which is still there. They're still doing a lot of work, but they're now on that bad list of mm. wildlife reserves where they do a lot of handling of their animals. They have a lot of encounters. And so I'd love to ask your advice as somebody over there, someone who's looking to go over and volunteer, getting an internship mm. opportunity. What's the best way to parse out organizations that are going to be really good to work with and the organizations mm -hmm. that are taking advantage of the wildlife that are not exactly mm -hmm. running things up to par? Yeah, great question. And that's such a important question because I feel like for so many, especially like emerging professionals that are so keen and in a way desperate to get their teeth sunk into some kind of conservation, some kind of conservation in Africa, um, they jump at the first bite or the first sign. Wow, this is, it's so, it's extremely easy for organizations in South Africa to come across to the US and sell everyone on this insane dream. And especially for an audience that might not be familiar with all the complexities and nuances. And so there's so many organizations in 2015, when we started GCC, there were 330 Save the Rhino nonprofits in South Africa alone. So there's so many, right? Like, how do you choose? How do you know? I think 80% of those organizations are out of business now. They were fraud, fraudulent and embezzling funds and not doing the right thing. So to your point, what I would say is just be a little bit more, just be cautious, do your due diligence. And I suppose I work in the world now a lot more of like social sciences. So in the world of conservation education and community involvement and sustainable development, instead of asking people at the top, ask people at the bottom, ask the beneficiaries, ask the community members. I know it's hard. Where does that bridge exist? How does that bridge get made? If you look at a at an organization and you look at their list of employees, I would say you can judge an organization by the way that its most junior employee is treated and respected and grown and valued. Talk to them. There's nothing to, to stop someone from reaching out to a, let's just for example, like a janitor at a school because in theory, Janice is probably not the highest paid job out there. But if that Janice is happy and stoked and has been there for 18 years, probably says a lot about the organization from a cultural perspective of, of what that organization, how they treat their team. And then you could do a similar thing for one of the beneficiaries of that organization. Reach out to the internet. You can find everything today. So I would just say treat it like a scientific paper. You know, do some peer review. Do your research. Because it's so easy to be blown away by the bright lights and by these sometimes very exciting, very real conservation stories. But like any industry, sometimes the good work and the good stories can get abused by individuals that might not have their hearts in the right places. As, as you've mentioned, you've experienced something similar. And unfortunately, what then happens is it puts a really bad light on 
the organizations that are trying to do good and jades people from getting involved down the road. So yeah, just to do your homework, don't rush into these things because there's a lot of people with South African accents that look like me that have stories that can come to the States and do their sales pitch. And next thing you spend $5,000 on a go save the pangolin in and what have you actually done and what good did what came out of it so yeah a lot of caution there and that's what that that's what was interesting for me was i had always had the dream of working with african wild dogs and this opportunity came across that was forwarded by a professor at my uh, so i didn't necessarily then go do the due diligence i should have i thought oh if they vouched for it when in fact they just saw something and forwarded it they didn't do any research on it so here I am excited, reaching out to this organization. I come over and when I've looked uh, a lot of this information up since, Parnas, from what I've read, started out very legit. And while they're still doing good in terms of trying to rescue indiv- individuals, they work with a lot of cheetah and African wild dog. Like I said, mm-hmm. they've started, their cheetahs are in a an enclosure, 20 of them in one enclosure. It's a large enclosure, but that's still not necessarily the best situation. And they get a lot of interaction directly with the people working there as well as people coming in. So there's just, it's become less of a legit organization. The group that I went with, it was more just the person at the top wasn't a good person and had everyone fooled, right? And they later on, about two years after I went, everything came out and I won't share that all here, but it became very messy. I wasn't luckily, I say luckily for me, but I wasn't involved, but it was pretty rough for a lot of people. So yeah, just definitely do your due diligence on all of that. Absolutely. There's, there's good places to go and they're not the greatest. So yeah, for sure. Sorry, you've had such a rough ride. Uh, <laughs> still got amazing experiences. And that's what I'll say is I still got to, we lived in a soft release site. We radio tracked cheetah daily. We were mm. doing behavioral studies on African wild dogs. And while that never came to a published study, unfortunately, it was really interesting work. So you're still getting that. And I got to travel for two weeks. So I got to see the mm. rest in Namibia the Okavanga Delta, Victoria Falls. I tell everybody that they need to see that area of the world someday because it's absolutely yeah. amazing. But I'd love yeah. to transition. I wanted to touch on your master's research, but let's do it quickly so we have time for the GCC. Yeah. It mentioned that you investigated the reintroduction of seven captive raised cheetah onto Namibian farmland. So I'd love to parse that out. Were these cheetah being reintroduced just not into a park, not into anywhere specific. They were just being reintroduced right back into the wildland of Africa that's now all... Yeah, absolutely. So Namibia's got the highest density of, and I'm sure you know all the stuff already just from your time there, but it's very cool. So Namibia's, yeah, got the highest density of cheetah in the world. And inside that density in Namibia, the the biggest place for cheetahs is a place called Ochiwarango, which is northwest, sorry, north-central Namibia. And it's just, yeah, a lot of like scrubby farmlands, massive cattle farms have taken over that landscape. Your bigger predators like lions and hyenas have been extirpated. And so what's what remains is cheetahs and leopards. They're now the dominant predators in that landscape. And that's where the headquarters for the Cheetah Conservation Fund are and where I got to spend about nine, nine months 
two field seasons working on this specific rewilding project, or let's call it a reintroduction project. And in theory, these cheetahs in, in our study had all come from moms that had been shot by Namibian farmers because the human wildlife conflict there is really bad, is really high at least with those larger predators and farmers. And so these seven all-female cubs were rescued and then raised in captivity with very minimal human contact. There was a release reintroduction protocol. So how often they got fed, how little contact they had with people. They also had an association. So when right before we fed these cats, we banged on the bowl like Pavlov's dog. So they associated the banging of the bowl to food. And so they, at two years old, cheetahs are fully grown, sexually mature. And we fitted them with these collars and reintroduced them back out into the wild. And the big question there was, all right, is their hunting and therefore their ability to survive and then reproduce, is it learned behavior or is it instinctual? And so we deducted that these cheetahs, these cubs had never, they were too young. <clears throat> They'd never seen their mom hunt before. And so if they could hunt and did hunt, then that would prove that cheetah hunting is like, it's inherent. It's genetically hardwired into them. And so that's what we looked at when we released these cats into the wild. And of those seven cats, they all successfully located, hunted and killed prey after release. And it was very cool to see some of the cats killed within, I'm trying to think back, it's now 10 years since the research was done, but I think, oh, Zinzi, amazing cat. She killed <clears throat> within 48 hours. Again, she had never seen anything hunt before and it just came to her and she went after and killed the Stienbo. Minya, I think it was Minya or Skeet, took 21 days to make her first kill. And so that's where that Pavlov's dog association came in handy with our VHF trackers and the satellites. We could then, if we saw that they hadn't made a kill for three to five days, and we knew that because there wasn't a cluster of location points, so they just kept moving. We would track them down, bang on this bowl, and then give them one kilo, two kilos, sometimes five kilos of meat to just give them a little bit of uh, supplemental support. So we looked at that. Amazing. So now we know that with cheetah behavior and ethology, like that hunting is intrinsically built into their systems, which is really cool because you cool in a very bad way. There's about 7,000 cheetahs left in the world. And if they all get wiped out and cheetahs are facing lots and lots of threats, but if they all get wiped out and we have a relic population of cheetahs in captivity, then essentially if we could get the world into a place where it was safe to reintroduce cheetahs once more, they would survive and learn how to reacquaint themselves with their natural behavior. So that was one really cool finding. I, I thought it was really cool. And then the other piece that was just really exciting as well was that three out of the seven females successfully reproduced and raised their cubs, which was amazing. Again, so you think about these cats can hunt and then they can also reproduce. In this case, it was with wild cheetah males that were in the landscape. And now there is, I think, four generations since that study happened, continuing to exist in, an, in a neighboring reserve called the Rindi. So yeah, that was my journey. And I guess one thing I'd like to say on that too, Sean, is that, that was one of these pivotal moments for me where I, before then I always thought that if I want to save wildlife, I've got to literally save the animal. But what happened was that four out of seven of these cats that we studied were subsequently killed by farmers. And so 
the reality of, oh, geez, if I want to save wildlife, the wildlife was actually fine. They could remember how to hunt. They could remember how to, re they know how to inherently reproduce. And re the real problem here is that human element. Humans are the greatest problem. We're also the only solution. And that's, that was a huge shift for me in that if we want to save wildlife, stop thinking about the wildlife, focus on the people. Because if people have better livelihoods and opportunities and futures, the wildlife is going to thrive. But if the opposite is true, the wildlife will always come out second best. So that was a, the research itself was fascinating from like a behavioral perspective, which sounds like you, you really appreciate as well. But from a, okay, what's my purpose now? Either I could have stayed in that world of cheetah and like heavy ethology and feeding behavior and all that. But I, I had a really strong feeling that I would just be in the same spot in a few years. So maybe trying to focus more on some of the systematic issues rather than the symptoms was where I went next. And that's, I actually had wanted to ask because it said that you reintroduced them into farmland. So did you create a relationship with any of those farmers or it sounds like yeah. four of the yeah. seven ended up being killed by farmers. So I, I was interested in that component yeah. as well, because there's again, that human component that you mentioned. Such a great question. So in this area, there's no, there were no big 21 strand electric fences like we have in South Africa. So the farmland very like open and contiguous. And I think there was 21, if I remember right as well, 21 farms touching on the CCF properties, different owners, different mentalities, different approaches. Some could not be reasoned with. And obviously that's where the, the trouble came from. Others when you show them the data and the science and they've got these collars and you could give a farmer an alert and say, Hey, by the way, deploy your livestock guardian dog, because you've got a cheetah on your property and keep your young goats or what calves what is safe. That did help. I don't generally farmers and people in general don't get a kick or a rush out of killing something that they can't eat. And then like most people don't get joy out of that, but they're trying to protect the economic investment. And, and as CCF did a really good job of proving, what was it? Just one point, if I can get it right. Yes, cheetah on that Namibian landscape account for less than half a percent of all livestock loss, but most farmers didn't know that. And they deducted that through scat analysis. So they pulled apart wild cheetahs scat and they found that, again, like only half a percent of all their prey was livestock. When farmers found out, and that's the power of education, the animosity started to decrease and the willingness to collaborate went up. So that's the beauty is that generally, if people know there's another way to do something and they get bought in, then it does work. And that's where CCF has seen great success is changing not just the attitudes, but also a culture of farmers to include cheetahs in their management plans or other large carnivores. So it can work. It can work. So I don't want us to run out of time. So I want to make sure we get to the Global Conservation Corps here. I could talk to you for hours about cheetahs and that work that you were doing. <laughs> but I really want to dive in. And I want to give you a chance to open this up just by saying, because you went ahead and founded and are the executive director of the Global Conservation Corps. So what is your mission of the Global mm -hmm. Conservation Corps? What is your goal? Yeah, absolutely. We've just been re reviewing our strategic plan, so I can tell you exactly what it is verbatim. Uh, well, I hope I can. Essentially, Sean, our, we envisage a world where people and wildlife can thrive. And when I say that, it is a world where these large tracts of land and wildlife and abundance can continue 
where on the other side of that equation, people can grow, can prosper, can be educated and can leave or live fantastic, full lives. And there's a space where both can happen, where people and wildlife can thrive. And so our mission is bridging the gap between communities that live next to conservation areas and the wildlife. South Africa's history is extremely dynamic and complex and quite sad, to be honest, with how many different populations, minorities and majorities have been oppressed. And uh, yeah, so knowing some of our history there in the Kruger landscape in the 60s, there was a, I forget the name of the act, but it was some kind of like the Resettlement Act. So it, it literally took indigenous communities that had been living here in the landscape for 600 plus years and relocated them out of Kruger National Park so that the government at the time could establish a protected area. And so removed three main tribes or communities out of the park from my from what I remember. And then they, this massive fence went up and essentially disconnected people and tribes that had been living with wildlife for generations and overnight essentially just cut off that connection. You come and visit here in this landscape, most of the indigenous communities surnames or last names are, are things like Inglovo or Nguenya, like elephant or crocodile, like their names, their identity is so intrinsically linked to the wildlife, but their their connection is being lost at a rapid rate. And so our main, we've got a few programs. We've got some serious focus happening now. And our main focus, our main program is called the Future Rangers Program. And I'd, I'd love to tell you more about that if we can go that way. That's definitely, I really wanted to go that direction because I ended up with the pandemic, I got my master's and ended up in education. So I taught biology at mm. a high school for two years. And then I spent the last nine months with Colorado Parks and Wildlife and there as an education assistant for them. So connecting what they're doing to K through 12 students around the state of Colorado. So we actually switched from a in-person, primarily in-person version to developing a virtual space so that we could access more classrooms and zoom in and teach mm. ecology or mapping, but do so based off of the work that Colorado Parks and Wildlife is currently doing. So give that connection so students can go out into the landscape around them and actually understand what's going on, taking their schooling and connecting them back to that landscape. So I really wanted to talk to you about this Junior Rangers program because that's really near and dear to my heart, this educating the next generation of conservationists. Yeah, Sean, brilliant. Yeah, that's I, I definitely want to talk to you offline about maybe some synergies we could have connecting our students over there. There's an awesome lady called Julie. I don't know if Julie through Dave. She also works in the Julie Stivers. I believe I've heard the name. I don't know if I've met her directly. Yeah. Yeah. So some, maybe some great like potential synergies on that space as well of connecting students here with your side of the world. But yeah, so the, the Future Rangers program is, in my mind, the most important thing we've done and definitely will do as we go into the future. So just some background, Kruger National Park is where we operate our program. We've got the Kruger Park itself is, you know, 2.2 million hectares in size, so five, 5 million acres for the US audience. To put that in perspective, it's the size of, I think it's the size of the Netherlands. So it's a massive tract of land. 
On the other side of that, we've got 4 million people living along the border of Kruger National Park. And the high majority of those people live in, live in substandard conditions, live in, in dire poverty, essentially. Unemployment is well above 50% officially, but in my mind, I think it's closer to 75%. And the people that are employed are connected in the tourism space, in the conservation space. And most of those individuals that do work are generally in at entry level to upper to entry level to middle level management. So it's still predominantly managed by Westerners, by Europeans or white South Africans like me. And so there's very there's still quite a barrier for employees to become true leaders and true voices and the outcomes and the decisions around that the future of that wildlife. But when it comes to the kids and the youth, that's an even bigger problem in my mind because the youth of today will become the decision makers of tomorrow. At the moment, based on some statistics and some at least some surveys we did, in 2017, I had a pivotal conversation with a really dear friend of mine who's no longer with us called Anton Mzimba. And we were filming Anton for this documentary we've been producing called Rhino Man. And Anton's holding this rhino horn, came from a rhino that was poached, and he's nearly in tears. And he's talking about his greatest fear. And his greatest fear wasn't that we would lose the rhinos. His greatest fear was that his own kids like weren't seeing and wouldn't see rhinos. And I said, but Anton, surely like you're a ranger here, like surely your kids and local kids from the communities, they see wildlife all the time. Like they must know what you do. And he's not, there's a massive disconnect between children and between wildlife. So we did surveys and out of 500 kids, we found that around 80% of children, four out of five kids had never seen wildlife before. And these are kids that maybe could hear lions roaring at night from across the village, or they could hear elephants trumpeting, but they couldn't see these things because there's a huge fence. And Anton kept saying, if these kids don't love wildlife, when they become the voters of tomorrow, they'll find more economic value in these areas, bulldozing them down, putting up housing developments or grazing their cattle or mining this area. And so that's for us where we felt like we could make our stand thinking about the story in Namibia with farmers and what's the, the systematic or the systemic issues happening. And in my mind, like if we can address and work with the youth, if we can generate that next generation of conservationists, yes, but of leaders that can see the economic, social and ecological value of conservation, then then there will be a chance for wildlife to survive. But if we don't support and inspire motivate, educate, all those adjectives. The ex-president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, he said, if it doesn't pay, it won't stay. If there's no value and these kids aren't getting jobs or they aren't getting access or they're not getting economic benefits, their wildlife's gone. And that's really what helped us start the Future Rangers program. That's why we started it in the first place. So when I was teaching in Miami, all my students are 30 to 45 minutes from the Everglades. And so coming in, as a, a little bit of a naive new master's in conservation biology, I'm asking my students, oh, how many of you guys have been to the Everglades? And less than half are raising their hands. And there's this huge network of wildlife within what I would have assumed was within their reach, but they don't actually have the ability. They're 14. They need parents or grandparents or uh, a school field trip to actually get them out to those places. So I'd love to ask you, what's the methods that you really found successful in being able to connect these students with that wildlife? Yeah, 
great question and, and wild about the Everglades. I, I've yeah, I, I cannot imagine. It's wild to think from my perspective that in a country as wealthy and as connected and as accessible as the United States, like that issue is there. And it just shows like we have a global disconnect. I was not teaching in a wealthy area is I was very inner city. They had access to the beach, but the beaches they had access to didn't have wildlife. They were city beaches. And so these kids had to get 30 or 45 minutes to get out of the city. And that just wasn't happening for them. Yeah. And it's funny, like you don't know what you're missing until you see it, right? So like in their oh, mind, yeah. it's probably super low down on the priority list and, and they don't even know that it exists or very few and, until you came along and even just taught lessons or asked them those questions. Like it's right there, but it's, it could be on the moon. Yeah. It's on, on our side here with Future Rangers. So we've got a very, what I'm very proud of with GCC and our Future Rangers program is we've got a very long-term approach. We've got this big integrated pipeline that we see the landscape in. So Traditionally, a lot of amazing conservation organizations focus on primary schools, on that elementary school level. Get the young kids, they're malleable, they're excited, they're easy to talk to. And the challenge, one of the challenges is in high school, a lot of organizations just leave, just forget about the high school kids because high school kids suck. Like I was a terrible high school kid. Most high school kids you can't talk to, you can't reason with. They just want to go and party and find the love of their life. And generally it's hard to engage. What we've done with Future Rangers is we try to consistently stay with these students as they progress. So in primary school, we try to teach, we try to bring exposure to these children. So try and get every single one of our kids exposed to wildlife on a safari, a game drive, combined with in-school lessons that fit in with the national curriculum. So it's really building empathy at that first phase. The second phase, once you've got that inherent interest and potential love for wildlife, we move into high school. And that's where our high school program is, is really cool because there's not a lot of high school programs for future environmentalists or conservation. So our high school program requires our students to conduct in-person interviews. They've got to write an entrance exam. They've got to have letters of recommendation. They've got to have their parents' support. So we move from primary school where every kid has this intrinsic right to access nature to in high school, all right, so you've seen nature, you say you really love it. Now you've got to prove that you love it and we turn it into a merit-based system. So the students that get in have to prove and have to consistently maintain their grades, their academic grades, while also in our program, they have to obviously participate. They have to exhibit certain traits that we use the National Geographic Learning Framework. So like curiosity, leadership, um, collaboration, they really have to engage in the program to stay in it. But in exchange for their commitment, we then start to take them into some really cool spaces. So we do a off-site leadership camp in the Kruger Park with a partner called Koru Camp, where we go and sleep in tents and are literally surrounded by Big Five and wildlife. You can hear leopards patrolling at night or looking at these stars. And it's generally the first time these students have left their homes or their villages. So we love to do these types of trips. We visit wildlife rehabilitation centers. We go on hikes. We visit places like the Reptile Center or the Wildlife College. And our big focus in high school is to expose these learners to different conservation careers. Because again, looking at the data, when we surveyed kids along Kruger two years ago during COVID, we found that generally kids or youth only knew two or three jobs in conservation. That was it. That they could only list two or three jobs. They didn't know you could be a, a bush pilot or that you could be a coder designing an app for conservation. They had no idea. So our goal with our 
high school program is to get these students exposed to all these different options with the main, let's say, overriding theme of conservation is cool. So that's our high school program. And we've got the most amazing local team of facilitators that are from the local communities and schools we work in. They've generally gone through those schools, now adults, and become mentors and role models for these students. And what we also integrate into this as well, Sean, is not just the ecological and the scientific approach, but it's building better humans. So we're looking at, all right, let's do um, a lecture on managing your personal finances and saving. Let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about wellness and choosing wisely with your diet. Let's talk about physical exercise because that's what it's going to take. You could have the most brilliant uh, ecologists in the world, but if they can't take care of their, their finances or communicate effectively with the public, you're going to fail. So we we are trying to build superhumans in these super communities to become that the leaders that we need. And that fin- the final piece of this is connecting these graduates to employment in that greater wildlife economy. And that's what we're building up now. For us, it's new ground, it's new territory. And this is all pieced together by technology. We are rebranding. So up until now, it's called the Future Rangers platform. But this platform is the first of its kind. And essentially what happens is it's used by nonprofits to track the impact they are having in their environmental education programs. So every time, this doesn't exist yet, every time a lesson, an activity, a field trip, a mentorship experience happens for an individual learner, it gets logged into a portfolio of evidence. And now when that learner goes to apply for university or for a job, they have a digital CV, essentially a conservation LinkedIn that they can use. And if there's 600 applications, this is why I, from this background and this school and this village, deserve and need this job. This is why I'm the one. So it helps to reduce barriers for entry for local conservationists to get in. And it also helps employers find the best performing candidates from villages and communities right next door. And ultimately it it helps wildlife because we're getting the right people into conservation leadership positions. So that's in a nutshell, future ranges and yeah, we've got 2,350 2, children in our program at the moment. That's the size. I think with our, yeah, proud of that. And we really, at one point we had, we were reaching 10,000 children every week, but we scaled back, especially on the high school side, because we want to look at the quality side of things before we scale too much further. But when it comes to scaling, What's very exciting is with our app, we've built it for other nonprofit partners, and we've got about 20 nonprofit partners in the landscape that are collectively very interested in using this. And collectively, with these 20 partners, we are reaching about 400,000 youth every single week. And so imagine a world where, let's say you are looking for a new, you you want like a, a producer on this podcast. And you want this producer to come from Velfredian village. They must have these skills, have been and seen wildlife eight times and have a strong focus on communication. What if there was a database out of those 400,000 kids, for example, where I could help you find a student that is incredibly passionate, deserving, and well aligned with this opportunity. It's, it's really exciting to think about a world where these amazing children and youth and emerging leaders are paired up with kind of those positions that 
potentially only come around once and we've got to make sure we can make that match. I, I want everyone in I want everyone to have at least not a similar story, but a story about how they got into conservation like I did, like you did, and how we help bridge that gap. I want to ask about a couple success stories in a second. If you can share them, I'm not sure if you can share individuals' stories. But prior to that, I do want to ask because I was a, a kid who I knew what I wanted to do by middle school and high school. I was volunteering at the Santa Barbara Zoo. I got into a program. I got to go work on the Channel Islands for a weekend. I got to work with California Condor for a weekend. I shadowed zookeepers. I did environmental education. It gave me all these opportunities and gave me a little bit of a CV before I went to college. But there's a lot of people I talk to in this field who weren't necessarily passionate about it in high school. I didn't know about it, didn't pursue it, get to college. And maybe it's their junior or senior year that they find conservation. And now because of programs like these, they feel behind. So I'd love to first just get your advice for those students who don't have Mm. all of this experience and realize, wait, this is what I want to do. Yeah, good question. I I don't think my mom always says nothing's ever wasted. And so if you are down the road and you've got one degree or two degrees, you're in a completely different line of work, or you're halfway finishing up an accounting degree and you're like, well, wildlife is amazing. I think if we think about what it's going to take for wildlife to endure, it's it comes back, but it's going to require all these different skills. There's this this uh, term called the greater wildlife economy that Teresa Sari started using a long time ago. And I, I love that. And it's essentially, it encompasses all the businesses, the jobs, the industries, the sectors that allow that wildlife economy to thrive. Plumbers and professors and architects, like everyone, everyone actually think about coming to a lodge, like what it takes to function that to run that lodge and, and who's needed. Yeah, everyone's got something to bring and those different backgrounds, those different qualifications is probably what we need. Because if I'm totally honest, I think generally we are still losing when we think about like this fight to whether it's save our planet or keep our climates in check or to stop deforestation, all these different natural issues. We generally are losing and then and we get so excited about these small blips of hope because we need that. We focus on that. But if you look in the bigger scheme of things, we're still not winning yet. We are on a trajectory too. But I think what I'm trying to get to is that the answers do not lie in those traditional career paths anymore. It lies at the intersection of different sectors. So like where does edu- in our case, we've got quite a cool value proposition. It's like where conservation meets education meets technology that hasn't yet quite been cracked. Okay. Now we've got a solution on our hands that wasn't there because we, maybe if we were all traditional environmental educators, we wouldn't have cracked that code. So I think it's an advantage actually to have had maybe a very different background and then decide you want to get into wildlife. We need that. I look at my board, for example, we've got lawyers, we've got like business, very hardcore business leaders. We've got individuals that advise tech, like the scaling of tech companies. We've got some amazing biologists. No one individual or one organization is going to crack the code on wildlife. It takes a village. So it's an absolute advantage to have your background, use it to your advantage. Like we said in the beginning, whether you're young, old, or somewhere in the middle, like it's your advantage because it's only yours. Definitely. So now transitioning a little bit to some of those success stories, if there's one or two that you would love to highlight, I don't know if you're allowed to or not. Yeah, absolutely. The one that I love to share 
Yeah, there's a couple. The one that comes to my mind is in 2020, we ran a scholarship program in the middle of COVID. Everything was locked down. We realized that the landscape needed more field ranges because a lot of field ranges were being, at that point in time, found out for corruption. So reserves were doing polygraph testing, integrity testing, finding out that these field ranges were corrupt and got fired. So there was this need, this landscape need for new field ranges. So we funded as GCC with our donors and our partners, 15 scholarships. And so we had 15 scholarships available. When we put out the job listing, we got 600 applications in 48 hours. Just to give you an idea of how desperate people are for a chance to, to get involved and to get employed. We whittled it down to 150 people that we then interviewed. And then from that 150, we invited 41 individuals to come through for a week-long selection. In that week-long selection, you sleep for a maximum of two hours at a time. You're doing 180 kilometers on foot. And that's all hosted and run at the Wildlife College. We essentially were just a funder to try and help youth get a skill, get a qualification, and then we were going to place them. So we got our 15 we got our 15 best, five women, 10 guys, got them through, all qualified, got them all employed. But the really cool thing was on the day of graduation, only one individual came up to me and he said, Mr. Matt, I just wanted to introduce myself. My name's Mboni. I wanted to say thank you for this opportunity to, to get this scholarship. And now I've got this qualification and I can move and I can get employed and, and build my career. I was wearing a Future Rangers t-shirt. If you've seen our logo, I'm not sure if you've seen our logo, but it's kind of like that, evol that evolutionary photograph of growing up and becoming a protector of rhinos in this case. I took that t-shirt off my back and I gave it to Mboni and I said, Mboni, you encompass what this entire program is about because you're the only person that took the time to come find me and, and let me know what this means to you. I don't want you to pursue uh, a job as a field ranger. I actually want you to come and work for us at GCC. Like, how does that sound? So Mboni coming through the end part of our scholarship program and becoming trained was absorbed into GCC. He pioneered a first of its kind YouTube series called Careers in Conservation. It's reached over 25,000 kids in the local language produced by a local conservation. And so he did that, pioneered that. He's also been running up until this year, our Future Rangers program with Leafa and Promise. And that's the success of one individual that we've been able to facilitate that kind of, of maybe transformation. And, and now he is helping us take our app uh, into a commercial space next year. So that's Mboni, an amazing shining star. You'll read a lot about him on the website. Maybe someone you'd like to interview at some point in his story, growing up in communities. But I, yeah, we had lunch together today in a great catch up. And I just, that, that's what it's all about is seeing it's just facilitating that that journey and now in Borny is standing up in front of thousands of kids every single week and he is an agent of that change he is a product of that program and so yeah that that's a really near and dear one for me so i know i've got to let you go here pretty soon it's yeah, like 5 30 i believe for you but yeah, yeah like if that's a great I, I think that's a great note to end our talk on the the GCC, I do end the podcast with the same four questions. And so I could talk to you about the GCC for hours again, but I do want to touch on these four questions and we can do them kind of rapid fire or if there's something you want to elaborate on, whatever's best for you. Uh, they're all just general conservation questions. So the first is what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? 
marketing that that's the one that comes to mind like if if we could tell a better story if we could make conservation more appealing more sexy more attractive to the greater world if we could market the value the economic the social the intrinsic value that nature has i think we'd have a much better chance of saving it or at least allowing it to endure and do what nature does so when you say the economic value i'd love to just ask you very briefly Growing up and living in South Africa with safari, there's a monetary reason to protect this wildlife. Yet you come to the States and Denise Peterson, she's dealing with the exact opposite issue with mountain lion here in the States in Utah. So do you see the ability for the States to have an economic and intrinsic value to their wildlife? Yeah, I do. That's such a, that's a big question, but I do. And I've seen it. I was in our documentary Ironman was fortunate enough to be in the Jackson Jackson Wild Media Awards in October. So I went over there with a few of our rangers from South Africa that we are great friends with and support, later from the Black Mambas, all out from the Timbavati, and we got to go to Yellowstone. And so that was a, a great example of seeing where like, there is an, a massive economic value on the tourism level in the States. I definitely am not qualified to have too much more of an opinion on it, but I definitely see that Probably the same principle. If it pays, it stays. And Yellowstone is profitable. It's keeping lots of people employed. It's a national treasure. It's protected by the law. And I think if we've just got to keep finding smart ways of the other thing, sorry, not to diverge, but the other area that conservation really needs help in along with marketing is communication. Like we need more voices that can explain and this is the value of your podcast and having guests on the show, we need more guests and advocates and celebrities or politicians or leaders that can explain like how critically important nature is, whether it is for the economics we need to function and thrive as a society, or more important, like the ecological benefits of pollination, clean air, or clean water. And how do you put a value on that? Well, you walk out into a desert, you'll quickly understand how important those ecological services are when you don't have these resources we take for granted every day. Yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Not rapid fire at all, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I did that one myself. But uh, So second one, (laughs) what areas of conservation do you want to see grow? Yeah, I. hmm, that's a really good question. Just Sorry, just give me one second to think about that. Yeah. I would love to see more community-led and community-owned businesses taking charge in that conservation space. I have a lot of respect for these bigger conglomerates that have 20, 30 lodges in their syndicate or in their collection. But there is big business in the safari industry. And at many points, it can be quite elite and exclusionary in that it doesn't, at its full capacity, involve and give economic benefits to local communities. I do these, I'm out in the bush a lot and in reserves a lot. And what kind of pains me, to be honest, is I see so many game drives happening and you've got a game viewer and you've got set nine seats available, but you've got two or four people on that game viewer. And in my mind, it's, well, why couldn't more local community members or children have be on that same vehicle and have, have that access to wildlife? And so, yeah, community-owned and led businesses, which could start to become more interlinked with that greater wildlife economy, because we didn't really touch at all on poaching today. Still in South Africa, one to two rhinos a day are, are killed. You think about elephants around the world, like lions, pangolins, the most trafficked animal in the world, like so much death and destruction is, is happening. And the peop- the frontline poachers are all recruited from local communities. 
And if we could turn the tide and start to have local communities be the ones that say to poachers and these syndicates, no, like this wildlife has got more value alive than dead because I'm getting, I'm winning, I'm feeding my family because I do X, Y, and Z. And I own this business and I run this business and I have equity in this business. There's no space for poaching in this village or community. I would love to see that grow, like more community-led conservation businesses. Like, And that's what I was trying to get to earlier too, Sean, is I don't have a business background at all, but I see the older I get the, the, the critical importance of conservation, like generating money, generating wealth, because if it like... If it's not conservation doing that, something else will, and it's not going to be nearly as special as the natural world, like special as in like critically important. And I feel like I should have you back on at some point just to talk about the poaching issue and what you guys are doing to help prevent that, because you're right, we didn't touch on that at all. And I thought that would be a big part of this. So there's so much to talk to you about. I do want to take the moment to quickly plug episode five with Dave Johnson, because he's doing he and the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund are doing amazing work with promoting and advocating for communities. So that's definitely a really important thing. Yeah, Dave and Ray and Chuck and the whole KACF community is phenomenal. They visited us four times in the last year. So they lead these amazing trips. Maybe Dave talked about it, but these amazing trips to come and connect with communities and always just such a listening and learning approach rather than top down. And this is what we do in America. It's more, how can we learn? How can we connect? And I had a great chat with Dave last night and they've got another three trips planned for this for 2024. Every everyone, I promise you, everyone is cannot wait to see Dave and his team. KACF is infamous down here because the kind of people that Dave and the team attract into that circle are people that are genuine. They are kind. They are here to to learn and to respect the cultures they interact with. And yeah, I, I could I can't speak highly enough about that entire organization and, and the good they do. All right. So then what concerns you about the future of conservation? And we got into a lot of this already. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, maybe I should just keep my mouth shut on this one because there <laughs> might be some overpopulation is what keeps me up at night and keeps me distracted in the day. When I grew up next to this Kruger National Park, between my town of Sabi and the park, there was nothing. It was just a few villages here and there. Now we're looking at 4 million people. And that was in the space of 25 years since I was a kid growing up here to now. So now I think in 25 years from now, like what is that population going to look like? What's the pressure on the natural world, all these the, the resources, a lack of government support. But I think all of our ecological problems and some social problems are really fueled by overpopulation. It's this unabated, unconscious growth of human beings. And I, I say that, yeah, just really interested in population dynamics and how it works and looking at in the natural world, if any one population gets out of hand, it gets smashed, but we keep defying the odds and think there won't be repercussions for our species and the planet. But that is honestly, that is my greatest fear and concern when in South Africa, young girls are being paid by our government for every child they have. So if you're an unemployed, sorry, excuse me, if you're a young girl going to school, maybe you've dropped out, alcoholism is rife, young kids are really, there's a lot of issues these kids are, are facing. But if you've been told your entire life that you're going to amount to nothing and your government's failed you and your family potentially doesn't have a job, we know unemployment's high, your best bet of generating revenue is to pop out kids. And now we've got 12 and 13-year-old girls pumping out kids. By the time they're 18, 
they are generating the equivalent of $150 a month for five kids. And that money is then being used, not necessarily to support the kids. There's a lot of research to back this up, but to allow the mom to feel assimilated into the culture. Like, like how in America, we might have a Ferrari to show we've got financial wealth. Here, if you've got a cell phone, you've made it. And if you're on that phone, the more you're on that phone, the more wealth you have because you can afford airtime. And so to me, I think it is an absolute deplorable I'm going to start swearing here. I'm going to be careful, but like it is a short-sighted lack of of leadership from our government that keeps thinking only about short-term gains. Because if we change those laws and we say, no, no, we're not, we're only going to pay you for two kids now, three kids now, or you're going to get taxed for more kids, they're going to lose votes. They're going to lose power. And that's really like my, my big point here is that it's all about the individual rather than the society or the community. Like it's the complete opposite of the natural world. And it's all about in society at large. It's about me. It's about me. But we've lost touch with what's good for our community and our species. And I think I'm like, I don't know, maybe a realist more than an optimist these days. But I think we will eventually pay the ultimate price. And it's going to come down to we will outstrip our resources if we aren't extremely careful and extremely quick. Because we are heading extremely fast about compound interest and how fast once you reach critical mass, things take off like we are. We're on a knife's edge and I, we are having, we're having a, our first child in six weeks, seven weeks. And I'm really interested to know what is my child going to see in his or her lifetime. And I hope it's much better than what I'm anticipating, but I think it is going to get much worse before it gets better. That's, you're not the first person to bring up overpopulation at all with that question. It's such a it's such a large impact right now and something that we do really need to think about. And speaking of that large population, this last question we've already touched on, but advice to future conservationists. Yeah, I definitely just come back to the power of mentorship. We all need role models. And sometimes we, oftentimes we we don't have the role models we need or could use in our immediate family. Sometimes we don't. I I did. But we have to find those mentors. I produced a show for Home Depot for three years called Trending Orange. So it reached 400,000 people every week across 3,000 stores. And it was all about the value of mentorship. So I, I think I've been into more Home Depots than anyone else in the world. But what I got to see there was truly having interviewed thousands of Home Depot employees how important it is to have someone you can lean on, to count on, to rely on, to confide in, to emulate. And I've felt that in my own life in conservation. I think when you stop having a mentor and someone that can call you out on your flaws and reward you and compliment you for your successes, like you've stopped growing. And so I would just double down on finding people that, you know, have changed the world, are changing the world, are, are humble, are kind, treat everyone the same and with respect and have that continuous learning mentality. So yeah, that final thought would just be, yeah, find some incredible mentors and and pay it and pay it forward. And I think to compound on that, I would definitely tell people who, whether you're a high schooler or an undergraduate student or very just early volunteering right out of high school in conservation, don't be afraid to reach out to people and ask for advice and mentorship because a lot of these students, a lot of the students I was working with didn't know somebody in the conservation space. It felt foreign. If they wanted to go into it, my advice to them would be if you find five people 
that you want to learn from and you reach out to them, three will respond. You'll be surprised. But everyone in this space wants to help. So don't be afraid to ask yeah. for it. Yeah, 100%. If someone reached out to you, you'd reply, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's. I, I was talking with somebody just a couple of weeks ago who's at a community college here locally who had to interview somebody in the conservation space. So it's definitely just ask. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. No, that's fantastic, Sean. Good questions. And, and thank you again for agreeing to do this. I really appreciate it. I had a great time talking with you. And I can't wait to see where this app is able to go. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a huge pleasure to, to be here and a, and a privilege. Just to, thank you for listening. It's so nice. It's, what's the word? Like com comforting. And you, I feel very valued the fact that you've taken this time just to listen to my story. What a privilege to have someone ask you to be on a podcast and to share your story and to feel like maybe there's a bit of value that you could share. And when you feel like that, you, it, it's inspiring to keep going and keep pushing and hopefully have some more stories to share with you on the next chat. Well, I know everyone listening was very inspired by that story of yours. Thank you so much. Yeah. And happy holidays. This is, this is the end of the year. So a really great way to wrap up the, the final call of the year with you, Sean. Thank you. 